Hey folks, welcome back to another episode of Middle Class Rockstar. I don't even remember what episode we're on. Somewhere in the in the upper 20s. It amazes me when I look back. I was actually shooting out some emails to get uh, to get some more people on the podcast, get some more interviews scheduled, and I thought, oh, I should have so and so on, and then realized that they were already on the show. So I, I've had enough episodes. <laughs> to where I had to think for a second to remember who I've who I've talked to. So I guess that's maybe means I just have a bad memory. I don't know. But something uh something positive's in the air this morning. My roommate's band, uh Grant Farm is getting ready to head out on the road for a couple weeks. So they're packing up stuff and there's excitement in the house. Kevin and Tyler uh, are, are both both been my roommates for some time, especially Kevin for, uh, geez, going on seven years now. And I'm getting ready to leave town as well, so I'm getting all packed up for that. I've got kind of a, a crazy trip coming up. Uh, one of my student groups, uh, the Ninth Avenue Trio, won the uh, Colorado Blues Society Blues Competition for the Youth Division, and so they are headed to Memphis for the International Blues Competition to do a showcase, and that's next week. Well, one of the members who's been my student for a long, long time, Eric, is, and me and him, and I'm explaining this poorly, Eric and I are driving to Memphis together with the music equipment with his mother. His sister is as is also my girlfriend, so it's very incestuous, and she lives with me in, in the bedroom here I'm talking in. <laughs> Anyway, we're headed to Memphis on Saturday, the three of us, me, Eric, and his mother, to meet the rest of his band down there, who I believe is flying out. And so I set up a a duo gig for us on Saturday night, the 25th of January, and then the Sunday, that's in Kansas City, Sunday, we're driving the the rest of the way to Memphis. The kids will be there all week doing clinics and activities and fun stuff. I am leaving Memphis on Wednesday morning. And driving to Nashville, I have a couple gigs in Nashville. I'm playing at uh, the Roxy on Wednesday the 29th, I think. And I think I'm doing a uh, songwriter circle, or a writer's round, excuse me, at Belcourt Taps on the 30th, but I'll have to double-check that. Then driving back to Memphis on the 31st to watch their big uh, showcase, the Ninth Avenue Trio. They've been working really hard on their songs. They're a... I, all juniors in high school this year, and uh, it's been great to see them grow and become ballin' players. So that'll be fun. And then Saturday morning, February 1st, I'm getting on a plane from Memphis and flying into Reagan in D.C., getting picked up by some family, and then I'm headed over to Jam and Java to play a set supporting Chuck Prophet, who's been one of my favorite songwriters for a long time. And then while I'm there, I'm going to visit with family. I have a ton of family in Virginia, in Fredericksburg, in Leesburg. Um, my grandpa is going on 93 years old, and grandma just emailed me and reported that he swam 40 laps without stopping yesterday. I don't know anybody under the age of 30 that can do that, and most of them have teeth. So I'm going to visit with family for a little bit. It's going to be fun. And then flying back uh, to Denver on February 5th, I think. I'll have to double-check all my dates. But anyway, fun, crazy week coming up. My guest today is Chase Wessel. 
He is the talent buyer at Levitt Pavilion. We had a great conversation. One of my one of my favorite things about doing this podcast is one, you get to interview and chat with all your friends, but two, you get to make new friends and chat with people that maybe you've seen around town a few times, but haven't really uh, connected with or had a long conversation with. And I I love getting to do that. And that was that was what this morning was. Chase came over and we started shooting the shit, and uh, it felt like we'd been been friends for a long time. Just a really cool, down to earth dude. Great story. Um, grew up in Monument, Colorado Springs area as a trump and was a trumpet player, and then went to UNC. Um, ended up playing some bi- switching over to bass. And then transferring to CU Denver, which is where I also went and did recording arts for a little bit, then did music business. He was um, a sound guy at the Meadowlark and also at Larimer Lounge. And then he moved to California and uh, did some really cool stuff. On uh, He was working on Conan, doing uh, backline stuff in and, and Kimmel, and then ended up getting hired by... Levitt in California, and he did shows, did about 400 shows there, he said, and then there was a Denver Levitt opening up, so he he moved home, and in that time, he met his wife, and they've had a couple kids, he's been back here since 2015, but it was a fun conversation, great dude, if you haven't been to Levitt Pavilion yet, you gotta go check it out, they do uh, 50 concerts a year, and most of them are free. So go check them out. There's lots of, they bring in all kinds of great national acts that you've heard of. So go go to their website. They're, it's all outdoor. It's all summer long. It's good stuff. Anyway, without further ado, let's get into my conversation with Chase Weston. Chase, what's going on, man? How you doing, Andy? Good. I'm. I uh, I do this every every week on accident. Almost every week, I start the uh, session to a click track, which is not necessary for this. It's not. I don't even have headphones on to hear the click. I was gonna say I'm. I, I'm glad I didn't give you headphones. <laughs> it might weird you out. <laughs> is the click still going? No, I turned it off. Do I need to talk in time? Well, you're a little slow. Okay. We're at 120. Okay, 120 yeah, standard. So All right, speed go. it up a little yep. bit. There we go. <laughs> so, uh, you're the talent buyer at I Love It Pavilion. Uh-huh. You've done a lot of cool things in the scene and bounced around a little bit. Let's start at the beginning. Uh, where'd you Where'd you grow up? Uh, I'm Colorado native, so I grew up in Colorado Springs. Cool. And uh, I went to high school in Monument, just north, at Lewis Palmer, and then. Uh, I started at uh, UNC in Greeley okay. as a trumpet major, went on scholarship there. Well, so as, as a kid in Monument and at Lewis Palmer, what was, the, what was the thing that got you into music? Were you playing as a little kid? Yeah, so actually, um, half the reason we moved to Monument is, uh, you know, Lewis Palmer historically has one of the best music programs in um, Colorado, and um, I was big into trumpet. Um, yeah. And, you know, in, in middle school, um, not that it's saying much, but I was all city kind of every single year that we did the, um, 
the thing and Monument's pretty big. <laughs> That's good to be all city. Mo- no, this was in Colorado Springs. Okay, right? okay, okay. So there's actually a population there. Monument yeah. were the only only school in Monument. Okay. Pretty small town. But Monument is included in Colorado Springs for that all city thing. I got so you. So when um you know, we were looking to my family was looking to move. Um you know, Monument had a really good public school program, but their music program um was good every single year. They have basically the most kids that are going to all city, all state. Um, every other year we were going to nationals because um, you can only go every other year. Otherwise, we'd have gone every year, I'm sure. Yeah. But uh, so my parents were rad because, you know, they moved to Monument for half. Half the reason they moved to Monument was for me and the music program there because um, they knew that I had such a huge passion for, for trumpet and for music. Yeah. Um, so yeah, went to went to Lewis Palmer. Um, graduated there in in two thousand two. Were you doing uh, a lot of jazz kind of stuff, classical stuff? What was what did you love? All of the above. So you know, jazz was my passion, and at the time, uh, big band was was really what I loved. Um, I was wow. the lead, I was the lead trumpet player um, in uh, big band. Um, I loved playing high and squealing high notes and um and I was pretty good at it and uh so that was kind of when I went to UNC you know I wanted to continue to do that I wanted to be the best highest I wanted to be the Arturo Sandoval kind of yeah player does it all and UNC is one of the top uh top programs yeah it was top five when I went there um and but once I once I got there um you know, I was a, a small fish in a really big pond of incredible players, um, and I went from being the best to being kind of middle of the field kind of thing, and it was it was right. definitely humbling, um, but it was really, it changed my musical tastes as well. Um, you know, it wasn't all about like, how high can I play? And I'm the, I'm the leader and I'm in front of everybody and you can hear me over everybody. And it evolved into, I loved doing the combo stuff way more. I loved once I started learning changes and soloing a lot more, um, you know, I would have traded first trumpet for, for fifth. So I could solo all the time, you know? Sure. And, um, and at UNC, I was a, uh, education major. Um, you know, like I said, being at Lewis Palmer, um, my experience there was incredible and Mm. I wanted, I thought that's what I wanted to do. Also, that was going to be my career path was to, you know, inspire kids and make them want to be the best that they could be um, and have the best program in the state and and things like that. And um, so that was my intention when I went to UNC. Now, did you have a scholarship at UNC? I did. Okay. I did. Um, So you got in and did some on a performance based kind of thing. Correct. Um, Even though I was an education major, um, I I went on scholarship uh, the first year after that first year. Um, skipping ahead a little bit, I got my wisdom teeth taken out and I got a horrible jaw infection and I couldn't play trumpet for over a year. Really? Yeah. A year? A year. Yeah. Like it was bad enough to where I had to go to the Mayo Clinic in Rochester. Oh my gosh. uh, Surgery on my jaw and it was brutal. Um, So that's worse than uh, typical dry sockets. Yes. My God. Yeah. I got what's called osteomyelitis actually. And 
um, bacteria gets into the incision and then they closed it up. So that bacteria got stuck in there, had nowhere to go and just basically started eating away at, at the jaw. Um, brutal. Wow. Um, kind of a freak thing. I had to go to so many different specialists to figure out what it was cause nobody knew what it was. And, yeah. um, eventually, you know, they figured it out, got it fixed. Um, but I couldn't play trumpet for over a year. So, you know, I've, I was no longer on scholarship there cause I couldn't play. Um, wow. but the cool part, you know, um, I lived with, with a bunch of jazz cats, you know, mm-hmm. there was, we had a house, an eight bedroom house, all, all jazz guys. Um, and one of my best buds, uh, was a bass player and you certainly don't need your face to play that. So I took that up and, um, ended up actually loving the bass and falling in love with the bass. And wow. it really helped me learn, um, you know, changes and, and chord progressions in a whole different way than it did on trumpet. Were you playing um, upright? I was not, no. Electric. electric. Okay. Um, yeah, electric, uh, much easier to learn. Right. And um, stylistically, you know, I, it translated. I, I was coming down to Denver and, and playing a rock band and right. doing some other stuff. And um, But rewind a little bit. Once I started doing my student teaching in Greeley, yeah. um, I hated it. And, and what are you, 20 at this point? Um, yeah, 20-ish. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah, right around 20. And uh, yeah, starting student teaching my very first, you know, Greeley's Weld County, um, highly Hispanic. My first week there, I had a girl throw a clarinet across the room at another student, hit her in the face, broke the clarinet, screaming at each other in Spanish. I can't do anything about it because... Uh, At this point, I can't speak or understand it, and um, it's extremely frustrating and not at all the high school experience that I had. Yeah. Um, And at that point, it was like, is this really what I want to do? Like, you know, I had a great experience um, in my high school, but is this what I want to do? Because, you know, you you probably have to start there to work your way up to a better program, right? Right, right. And, um, And at this point, you know, again, I was... I was playing a lot more and I was coming down to Denver a lot more and, you know, um, taking the year off from playing my trumpet, you know, I really had to look inside myself and be like, what, what are you doing? And is this what you want to do for the rest of your life? And, um, you know, music has always been my passion since I first picked up the trumpet in fifth grade. Yeah. And so I knew that I still wanted to do something in music, but teaching was not it okay um and i learned that pretty quick so then you joined a punk rock band i did join a punk rock band oh, actually I it got was it. <laughs> it was horrible and Greeley. yeah when i uh so i worked at, at papa john's yeah. and uh i was a delivery driver there and one of the other delivery drivers was a guitar player and one of the cooks was a drummer so it was like a papa john's horrible punk band um we never actually played any shows um, okay. But there was a lot of beer drinking and uh, the same three power chords kind of over and over That's again. That's all you need. Which got me into it. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, and you were playing bass in that I was group. playing bass in that Okay. Band. Yeah. What was um, that group called? You know what? I couldn't even tell you at this point. <laughs> like I said, we never played any shows out. Yeah. So I think we went through like four different band names. None of them ever stuck. Um. And none of them needed to because we never got a gig. Right. Um, 
So, but that's that's kind of where it all started. So, good guess there. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, after UNC, um, and and the and was Papa John's. Yeah, I, I was at Papa John's. John's up there, and then I uh, I upgraded a little bit to Olive Garden. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. okay. Walking out, with get a some real tips. Yeah, some real tips at Olive Garden. Yeah. Um, unlike Papa John's, where it's just like they bring you in the house and they're like, "You want to smoke a bowl with us?" And I'm like, "Sure," but can I have money too? Like, I need to pay rent and things. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, the Olive do Garden. Do people do that when you deliver pizza? Oh yeah, especially in a college town, it's delivering to college kids that you know don't even have any money to begin with at that point like right. when you're showing up to the front door they're writing at this point i was still you know they're writing you a check for their seven dollar pizza okay you know so it's not like they were you're not getting giving tip. me a five spot on top of that really yeah you know unless i was going to the nicer neighborhoods in Greeley or at least whatnot. you can get high at least there was that for free you know yeah. and then i'd bring home a pizza to sell to my roommates for a dollar or two a slice or maybe another bowl or something. Or, yeah. You know, oh, whatever. so you kind of had a business going. Yeah, and in college, you do what you got to do, man. Oh, right? of course, of course. <laughs> and you ended up at some point uh, transferring down to C Denver. Correct. Um, was there anything else in between there before going to CU Denver? Did you wait a few years? Well, um, before I went to Greeley, actually, um, I went to a summer recording camp um, at UNC. Um, in between my, I think it was in between my junior and senior year of high school, or it might've been in between my senior year and freshman year at, at UNC, whatever the case was, I, I did this recording camp. Um, it was super, super cool. And I, I really enjoyed it. Um, but UNC didn't like have a recording program at the time, you know, they had some equipment and stuff like that, but um, whereas CU Denver had an incredible recording program, yeah. um, one of very few in the United States. Um, and so, you know, and I was spending a lot of time down in Denver also. So yeah. it was kind of like, you know what, I'm going to go after this. Like, yeah, I love recording and, um, you get to, I still get to work in music and work with a bunch of awesome musicians. And, um, so yeah, I transferred down to CU Denver um, as a, as a recording and tech focus. Yeah. And, um, started doing the recording stuff, but I was, I'd gotten my first gigs, um, doing live sound at, you know, little places. Uh, the metal arc was kind of where I got my, my official start. And I was there I love mul that multiple place. nights a week. Oh yeah. dude, it was rad. Like I got to set up for the Lumineers when they used to play down there before. They played down there? Oh, yeah, for sure. Did did they totally pack the place, or or was this even before they were packing that? No, this was before that, man. Um, and then, you know, Ho Hey or Hey Ho, whatever the song is, came out. Yeah. And overnight, I think huge. the Ho comes before the Hey, but I'll fact check that. Ho, yeah, we'll fact check it. I'm not <laughs> sure. Um and yeah. it was it was so they were playing down there at the Meadowlark and yeah, then that song nobody came on a out. stage that they couldn't even all fit on. Oh my um, gosh. But that's that's you know where I got my start. That's and, so cool. Um being right next to Larimer Lounge, um mm. I got to pick up some gigs there. I started interning at Larimer Lounge. Um and then when my internship was up, um they offered me the marketing manager position. Okay. And so I worked there for a couple of years as the What year is manager. this? Uh, this is 2007. Okay. Um, 
might have even been 2006 I started, but I was there for a couple of years. I want to say either six to eight or seven to nine. Okay. Um, and did you overlap with Tony Mason or anybody like that? Not at all, no. Yeah. Um, I was with James Irvin. Um, oh, okay. Who, uh, you know, I, th- I think he kind of put Larimer on the map with some of the yeah. um, booking that he did. And, uh-huh. you know, now um, he's had some great success um, with Knitting Factory. He was in Brooklyn, and now yeah. he's, in, uh, he's in Omaha, but he's still doing Brooklyn. So, um, you know, I got to got to learn from him which was super cool and yeah he allowed me to do even though I was the marketing manager he allowed me to book some of the local shows there so that's really where I kind of started doing some booking stuff and really enjoyed it because at that point it was like I was going to see live music seven nights a week kind of thing in college and I had so many friends that played in bands that were looking for gigs and now I could actually I could be that guy that got on the gig yeah you know I could put together these bills that like I thought were really going to be good. Um, even though sometimes they weren't at all. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Um, but you know, you got to learn somewhere. Sure. Um, and so you loved, that's interesting hearing, hearing that, that perspective, you love that aspect of it, of I want to put, you know, my friends bands who I all like on a bill together and mm -hmm. and see what happens. Yep. You're sort of the creator of that. I mean, that's kind of what we all want to do is, is music bookers, right? It's not, I mean, don't get me wrong, there's plenty of music that I book that I don't really enjoy, and mm-hmm. it's not necessarily what about what I enjoy, you know, because everybody has different musical tastes. Right. Um, but when you're first starting out, the excitement of, hey, I get to put my three favorite bands on this bill together, and, you know, it's going to be awesome, and then the day comes, and there's like 50 people there, and you're like, what happened? I thought this was going to be perfect. This is going to be great. You know, and then you figure out kind of where you went wrong or what else you needed to do to make it more successful so that the next time you do it, you can build on that. Yeah. And it goes from 50 tickets to 100 tickets to 150 tickets the next time. And did you always put the responsibility on yourself when a show didn't go as planned, or, or, or would it sometimes be a combination of things? What... How would you, what were your thoughts when you expected a show to sell 150 tickets and it only sold 50? Well, again, when you're young and inexperienced and naive, there's these things that you think are going to happen in your head. Yeah. Um, and then when it doesn't, you have to go back and say, "All right, what what didn't I do, or what could I have done more of?" But you're right. Sometimes that does go back to the fact of like, you know. This is also at the time of like MySpace, right? So right. you're going and you're going back through the band's MySpace and you're like, hey, man, like you guys haven't posted about this show in like two weeks. Like, and I've been posting about it every day. So there's like, there's this combination of people are getting tired of seeing my posts about the same show every day. Yeah. And people aren't seeing the posts from the band. Right. You know? So the next time around, it's like, all right, I need to quit flooding my you know friends and followers with the same show every day because by the time it comes around like they don't want to hear about it anymore they don't want to see it they don't want to because I've just been kind of shoving it down their throats um and I put a lot more of that on the bands because most of the time the band has a lot more reach and following than me as an individual did especially at the time where I'm nothing more than a college student I'm not a promoter at this time I'm not you know, I'm nobody. I'm just yeah. booking some local shows because there was an open date. Yeah, you know? that's cool. Is it so? 
any of those early college bands that you were booking at Larimer Lounge, um, you know, that that were your college buddies at CU Denver, are any of them still out and cooking or are most of them disbanded? Um, most of them have disbanded or, you know, they've, they're on their seventh band, you know, right, um, right. because it's one or the other artists either get super tired of not making any money or they're completely used to it and that's their lifestyle. Yeah. Um, for me as a musician, you know, I, I was the first one. I, it was fun playing gigs for a while, but it was really disheartening never making any money, never yeah. making more than 50 bucks. I remember, so I played in a, um, I played in a death metal band actually cool. called Identity Pusher. And we played a, a Bluebird show. And I remember we were all so excited because we were the headliner finally. We had, we'd played all these other smaller shows and kind of worked our way up. And, you know, there are probably 300 people there. So not a, not a ton for a Bluebird show. Um, but still, 300 paid through the door. Um, and I remember at the end, like, I actually put the show together. So um, I had to pay out the bands and stuff at the end. And after paying everybody out, and we had done so much promotion, I walked away with, like, $60 after I'd been working on the show for, like, two months. Yeah. And I'm like, what the fuck? Yeah. Like, what happened here? Like there were people here. How did we not make any money? Right. And, um, you know, some, some musicians, they'll be, that makes them hungrier and be like, all right, next time we have to get 600 people in there. And, um, you know, we've got to do a, B and C to make this much bigger. And some of us are like, man, I'm so tired of this. I put in so much time, so much effort. Yeah. And it's just giving me nothing back. Yeah. You know, I enjoy doing it, but enjoyment doesn't pay my water bill, you right, know? Right, Um So for me, that was, that was kind of when I quit playing music for money. Yeah. You know, I would still, you know, pick up gigs sitting in with friends or um, playing in a cover band or something like that, but I did it for me and for the enjoyment of playing music, not because I needed to make a hundred bucks from the gig. Right. Right. You know, so, um, so being on the, I'm just formulating this question that's coming out of my mouth. So hopefully it, uh, it works out, but (laughs) so you're someone who's been on both sides of it and there is sometimes conflict between band and buyer Mm -hmm. or band and venue. And, and you're the, you're the spokesperson for the venue. Sure. Um, how do you go about handling situations like that as a talent buyer when a band comes in like, man, we worked our ass off and I got 60 bucks. What the hell? Yeah. Um, and, and it might be, they might have a good point or it might just be an ignorant comment because they were hoping to make more money. Understandable. Mm-hmm. How do you go about handling situations like that when there's a, a conflict with the band at the end of the night? Currently or back then? Probably more back then. I, I, I'm, it probably doesn't happen as much currently. It doesn't currently. And, you know, at Levitt, it's different because um, it's a free show, you know, right. or a soft ticket. Um, so the bands are getting paid a flat rate. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, you know, back in the day, you're doing door deals all the time. Yeah, You're not getting a flat rate unless it's a small flat rate with a back end deal on top, you mm-hmm. know? Um, 
So I'd, I would say that was the biggest difference is it, the difference in the deal, right? Yeah. Um, but the thing is, you know, bands can hustle their asses off, and if they don't sell the tickets, um, it doesn't matter how much you hustled. Right. You know, and that's that's the tough part. Um, and that can be the really disheartening part. And, um, you know, it's it's it comes down to how much do you love the music and where do you see your life going? And for me, um, you know, as much as I love playing music, um, my passion for playing it has definitely evolved. Yeah. Um, you know, the guys that do it for the music, perfect example. Um, I had Tommy Emanuel uh, a couple years ago. Wow. Yeah. The most incredible guitar player that I've ever witnessed in my entire life. Yeah. Um, and from the time that he arrives to the venue to the time that he goes on stage, he didn't stop playing guitar. And it's just like he's playing his songs. He's playing scales. He's just he's playing because that's who he is. That's like his guitar is, you know, another extremity of his body. So know? even backstage, that's, he's just playing. Even backstage, you know, I introduce him. I welcome him, you know. And next thing I know, I'm just sitting on the loading dock, just enjoying him play, because mm. um, he's just incredible, an incredible musician. And for him, it is a hundred percent about the music. Now, does he make a good bit of money and a great living doing it? Yes, he does. He's done it for a really long time, and he's an incredible musician that a lot of people come to see. Well, he made it a hundred percent about the music through all of that and not getting paid for a while probably and, sure and got so damn good at it that he gets right. paid a lot to do it totally you know? totally um and for me i didn't have the patience to hone my craft in so much that i was the very best one yeah and that's all i wanted to do you know um it just it wasn't about that anymore and the older i got the more the more I saw that and that became more abundant um, that, you know, I love bringing these musicians in um, and I love being able to present that to um, a community that maybe hasn't ever seen them or heard of them um, and blow people's minds that way because, you know, I'm a decent musician, but I'm not going to blow anybody away with my trumpet or bass skills, you know? Yeah. Um, So it, at one point I had to say, you know, which one am I going to do? And I chose the one that, you know, I, I felt like I could have a long, enjoyable career with. Yeah. And you, and you haven't looked back. I haven't. Yeah. Um, you know, go, going back to, you know, the CU days when I started doing live sound um, and I started um, promoting these local shows and booking these local shows, I, I switched majors for a third time. Um, to music business. Mm. And I was incredibly lucky that CU Denver had that as well. Again, was one of the few in the United States at that time that had a music business program. Um, And, you know, my passion went from studio recording to live sound 100%. And and CU Denver at that point didn't have that. It was all analog boards. It was all studio focused. Right. And once I started getting out and about and, you know, doing the the Metal Arc and the Larimer stuff, 
that's all I wanted to do, you know? And I, I was learning that out. I didn't really need to pay, you know, thousands of dollars per semester to learn how to do that. Yeah. Um, You were doing it on the fly. And when I started doing the, the local booking and having some of those failures, you know, Mm -hmm. I really wanted to learn more of, you know, how do I not fail? How do I, how do I make these successful shows that people want to continue to do with me? Yeah. Um, and that was, that was where things changed for me for sure. And from then I, I've, I haven't gone back. Um, you know, I I couldn't mix a show now to save my life. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and, and shout out to CU Denver. We're both a CU Denver alum. Whoop, 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 whoop. Yeah. So who are, who are some of your, who are some of your most influential teachers when you were there? Um, I mean, Storm Glore was by far, um, the most influential and him and I are still buds. Um, like I was telling you earlier, I was in his very first classes. Yeah. Um, so I'd, I'd like to say we kind of learned things together a little bit. Yeah. That's cool. But you know, his, his passion for music and artists, um, you know, I don't see that in a lot of people. Yeah. Um, and Storm, he could tell you anything about anybody. And it's like, man, you're just an encyclopedia for music. Um, Chris Daniels is yeah. another one. Mm-hmm. Um, incredible guy, incredible musician, very down to earth, always willing to, you know, give you real advice. Yeah. Um, when I was in the recording program, Lauren Bregitzer, you know, that guy was awesome. Yeah. Um, and again, he was one of those guys that, you know, class would be over and he'd spend as much time as he needed with you, you know, working on little tiny things that as a student you you know you want to learn how to do these like little decays or yeah um, things that make the recording go from good to awesome yeah you know oh that's great that's great um good people and they're still still running a great program they got the singer songwriter major in there and stuff now mm-hmm. so yeah um, yeah shout out and to i them. actually i get a lot of incredible interns out of that program still so yeah that's that's fun for me because I get to go back and, you know, I get to give back to the school that, you know, really helped me out. But I also get to kind of help some of those students in their career path. And Who had the same teachers to... as you. Exactly. Yeah. No, that's neat. Um, now, so after Larimer Lounge, uh, I guess we were, we're predicting that's around 09. Um, yeah. What? That what was the end of around. Of, yeah, the end of, uh, of the Larimer Lounge era. Uh, why did you leave there? Where did where'd you go next? Did you leave? Uh, I think I read you left Colorado for a I little left bit. Colorado for a good bit. Yeah, yeah. I uh, I kind of felt like I had hit a ceiling in Denver. You know, I'd been at Larimer for a few years. There was really no signs of me moving up to Bluebird or Ogden or Gothic or anything like that. And I'd been in Colorado also my entire life. Yeah. And I wanted to see what else was out there, you know? So for me, it was, all right, are you going to Nashville? Are you going to Austin? Are you going to Los Angeles? Are you going to Portland? You know, I'm, I'm thinking of the cities that I know that have a solid music scene, right? Yeah. Um, well, I'm not much of a country guy, so, you know, Memphis was, um, kind of not even a thought. Yeah. Um, 
Texas, you know, um, just not a huge fan of the weather. There were all these little things that were like, no, I don't want to go there. Portland, yeah. you know, I had a lot of family there. Um, but as much as it rains in there, especially coming from sunny Colorado, it was like, no, I don't want to go there. Yeah. Um, so LA seemed like the right place for me. Cool. And, um, a great high school buddy of mine actually, um, was already out there and he came, um, back to, back to monument as we all did for Christmas to go hang out with our families. Mm -hmm. And once the families go to bed, that's when we all go hang out yep. things. And, um, you know, after a couple beers, he's like, Hey man, you want to come to LA? You can stay on my couch for as long as you want. And, <laughs> uh, I think two weeks later I called him and said, Hey, I packed up all my shit. Um, I'm coming. And he's like, what? Like kind of thinking that I wasn't going to take him up on the offer. Yeah. And uh, moved to Los Angeles, um, Santa Clarita to be exact, which is, you know, with L.A. traffic, it's anywhere from an hour to two and a half hours north of Los Angeles. OK. Um, but I had a place to stay, which rent free, which, you know, moving to a new city, especially in Los Angeles, where it's so expensive to live. Right. Um, that was that was really all I needed. And then from there, it was just go hustle and find find a job. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't think that my friend thought uh, I was going to sleep on his couch for four months. Um, was he cool with it? He was. Um, and mostly because um, I like to think that I was probably the best couch surfer um, in the history of couch surfers. Because okay. since I didn't have a job, um, during the day, if I wasn't going to find one, I was cleaning the house or I was making dinner for everybody. So when they got home from work and school, like dinner was ready and oh, man. on the table they loved and you. I was doing dishes afterwards and you know, all the things that typically you're hor you hear horrible stories about God, my roommate sucks. Like they don't pay rent. They don't chip in for food. They don't clean anything. And so, you know, I wanted to do all those things. It was also my very first experience of uh, couch surfing, yeah. not having my own room. So I wanted to be respectable for sure. Right. right. Um, and, you know, yeah, I, I was there for a good four months. I think he, my buddy Brian, Brian Bullard, he's actually a mixer for uh, NBC Universal. Cool. There. Um, but he'll tell you that I stayed on his couch for like six, seven months. And I'm pretty sure it was only four. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Fair enough. So what got you, what got you off the couch finally? Um, so I got, uh, I got a job with a backline company, um, in Los Angeles, um, North Hollywood to be specific. Yeah. Um, but I had, you know, leading up to that, I'd kind of, I'd volunteered for anything and everything that was there. You know, I was doing stagehand work for free, like on the sunset strip, just so I could meet people and kind of get my foot in the door. And, um, Eventually, um, I volunteered for a seminar called the New Music Seminar, and they had done it a couple of years in New York, and they had, this was their first year kind of dabbling with it in Los Angeles. Yeah. And um, so I volunteered for that. And the they had kind of a first night was this nightly showcase thing um, at what was called the Music Box. Um, I don't know what it's called now. It's gone through a couple different changes of names yeah um but that was like the the really big venue um right there on sunset and then um 
Then they did a series of uh, smaller stuff at some of the smaller um, clubs, like, you know, the Roxy, the Viper Room, Key Club, those kind of places. Yeah. And uh, the final night was this Battle of the Bands, where they had, you know, four different bands um, throughout the nation that came and got selected for this thing and performed and um, whatnot. And um, so the backline for this thing gets dropped off, um, but doesn't get set up. Everything's just kind of sitting in cases, and the producer's like, uh, does anybody know how to set up a drum kit? So, you know, I raise my hand. I'm like, yep, I can do that. And uh, so I get this kit all set up, and, you know, without asking or anything, I, I decase all the other amps and set everything kind of like how it should be. And dude comes back, and he's like, holy shit, like, you set all this up? It's like, yeah. And he's like, it looks really good. Like, we didn't give you any stage plots or... Like, yeah, well, I've played in a few bands. Like, I was the bass player for a band, so I should be able to set up drums considering yeah. that, you know, <laughs> bass players, we show up, we plug in, we're good to go. Yeah. You know? That's nice of you as a bass player. I think all bass players, uh, you need this, you should tell all bass players to know how to set up the drum set, too. Totally. Totally. Well, um, and when you're playing in, you know, like I said, I was playing in that metal band where there's a lot of pieces to the kit, a lot of cymbals, a, you know, a lot of hardware. It's, um, it's a lot to set up. Yeah, you know? absolutely. The bass player, I, I plug in the amp and I'm good to go. So, yeah, um, yeah, I, I you know set up all this backline, and uh, and then I ended up teching for the bands that night because um, like I was like just stay up here, like just take care of the bands tonight. I was like, yeah. Okay, this is super cool. This is way better than you know filling coffee and throwing out the trash and you know the other things that I didn't really want to do. Yeah, right. Um, and so that gig actually um, led me to get the gig at um, this other backline company. It's called Lawn Cohen Studio Rentals. And um, I worked there for a couple of years. Um, Lawn, um, he had all top-notch, really nice stuff. Yeah. Whereas a lot of the other backline companies, you know, their stuff kind of just gets thrown around and, you know, if sometimes the amp even gets delivered and it doesn't even work. Oh, no. You know, whereas lawns, like, when you check it in, um, you you check through every knob to see if there's scratchy pots. You make sure that all the tubes are seated correctly in the amp head. Um, you make sure the reverb tank is is all good and is um, not starting to go out. Yeah. Um, you know, you check every every um, quarter inch jack to make sure they all work. I mean, it was tedious. The work was tedious, but yeah. right. It kept all the gear super nice, and because of that, only you know your higher um, higher scale clients wanted to use it. You know, because we had kind of developed that shtick like hey if you want really nice gear or boutique gear we had a really nice collection of um you know non-standard things um, right you got your diesel amps and your uh, 5150s wow. and yeah. um you know and a, and a lot of vintage stuff you had these cool vintage marshals and um just a lot of stuff that you wouldn't find at a normal rental house or, or backline place right and because of that, um, he had the the contracts um, for Conan, um, okay. Conan show, yeah, 
did a bunch of stuff on the Kimmel show, um, the Late Late Show, um, because they knew when they got gear from us, you know, it was going to be, it was going to be pristine. And we also sent, you know, free spares in case, you know, for some reason something went out during a performance kind of thing. Um, and that was incredible because, um, you know, I got to go and work on the Conan show almost every day. Did Um, you ever meet him? Oh yeah, for sure. Um, plenty of times. Super no tall dude. Super cool dude. I heard he was super tall, like six. Super or tall, yeah. And and the hairdo, you know, the big wave hair yeah. thing that makes him even taller. Um, nice guy. Nice guy. I mean, it's not like if if I were there today, he probably wouldn't know my name, even though I was there, you know, four days a week for quite some time. Yeah. Um, whereas someone like Jimmy Kimmel, like he'll sit down and have a beer with you in the studio, kind of thing. Seriously? And he might know my name. Yeah. Um, even though I was there a lot less kind of thing. Um, two totally different kinds of people. Yeah. Um, but both both super cool guys. Yeah. That's that's um, a, that's an awesome uh little side story. You oh man, it was the that. most it was and it was the most fun job because yeah. those shows they have everybody from your legendary acts like Ringo and Slash, um, to up and comers, you know, like Kendrick Lamar and um, I don't know who else is up and coming, but at the time, you know, it was yeah. like, who is this guy? And then, you know, two years later, you see him selling out stadiums, and it's like, right, Holy shit, I got to backline that guy and be his tech for the day. Like, that was super cool. And meet all these people. And meet all these people. Um, Walk the Moon was one of the cooler ones. Um, mm. They, uh, you know, they're they're huge now, and they've got gone in a lot more poppy direction um but at the time it was like i don't remember what their very first single was um but you know they're just kids from ohio that show up in jeans and t-shirt and they're like just in awe that they get to play conan and of course you know and then i tech for them and then they're like hey we're playing uh the long beach uh surf open like can you come down and and tech for us there and it was like super cool they're like, we're also playing the show in Northern California. Can you come tech this show for us? And I was like, yes. So they just, they totally. met you, took a liking to you, took a liking to them, and they kept calling you to do stuff. Yeah. And that would happen plenty of times, you know, wow. because a lot of times with, when they're playing Conan, it's either a fly date, then they're just doing the show, or they're playing Conan that day and they're playing a show at the Troubadour that night or uh-huh. somewhere else that night. So if they really liked you during the day, hey, come to the show tonight, you can tech the show. Or if they don't need the help, hey, come to the show tonight, I'll put you on the guest list plus one, bring you backstage, we'll take care of you. It was like, it was definitely the most cool, fun wow. job that I've had. <laughs> That's sweet. Did, um, did you end up booking any of those acts later no, on? No, not at all. None of not them? Not at all. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, not on the show. But I mean, you know, at Levitt or somewhere else, did you ever end up booking one of those acts that you worked with as a tech? Um, well, this year actually, I think might be the first one. Um, I teched for uh, Will Hogue um, on Jimmy Kimmel show, mm. and he is going to be playing Levitt this summer. Levitt cool. Denver. So that's super cool. Cool. Um, Wait, does he pronounce it? Is it Hogue or Hoge? I or thought Hoge. I thought it was Hodge, but Hodge? I could be. It I, could be. I have no I've one. never. But the country guy, but who writes good songs? Yeah, the yeah. country guy that writes great songs. Oh, um, I love. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Yeah, I got to do him on on Kimmel, and now he's playing Levitt. 
Um, but most of those acts, like I said, they like Walk the Moon, for example. I could never afford them at, at Levitt. Right, you know, for a free show. But they would remember you. Uh, oh, they would definitely remember me for sure. Yeah, did plenty of plenty of shows with them. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's cool things like that that make you want to keep doing it, right? So, whatever made you leave that job? That sounds awesome. So Levitt made me leave that job actually. Okay. So um, at the time, and my ultimate goal was always kind of running my own venue. Mm. Um, you know, Levitt isn't mine per se. But I've been with Chris Zacker, the executive director, since day one, since before day one, um, when it was kind of just a thought. And um, so he gives me a lot of artistic freedom to kind of do what I want to do as far as programming goes there. Mm. And um, so I've been extremely blessed with that. Um, But my ultimate goal was always kind of having my own venue and running my own venue. So... um, there's there's eight Levitt, um, Levitts in the United States. Uh, Denver um, is one of eight. I and just learned this yesterday doing looking up some notes for the show that there is more than one. Yeah, so we're Levitt as a whole is the largest provider of free music in the United States. Cool. Um, but at the time there was Levitt Los Angeles and there was Levitt Pasadena, um, and in, I want to say, 2012, uh, those companies merged into one. Okay. And became Levitt Pavilion, Greater Los Angeles, and Pasadena. And the thought there was um, was a lot of block booking. Um, because for these free shows, right, we don't, ha- we don't have huge budgets for these free shows. Now, don't get me wrong. The artists get paid very well. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of times they get paid just as much um, – it Levitt as they would playing a sold out show, you know, somewhere else because that's what I have to pay them in order to get them. To get them, it's like, well, we made this last time at, at Cervantes, you know, we have to make at least that, right? And um, so the thought there was that, all right, we can we can do all this block booking where we have, um, you know, an artist play Levitt L.A. on Friday and then they come and play Levitt Pasadena on Saturday. Um, and we can get, you know, some smoking deals because we're basically routing those two plays. We're buying two plays. Um, but the issue there was that you have two completely different demographics in, um, old town Pasadena, um, versus MacArthur Park in Los Angeles. Um, they're completely, completely different markets and demographics. MacArthur Park's an actual place. MacArthur Park it's is not an just actual that place. Awful yeah. song. Jim, Jimmy Webb's famous MacArthur Park, which we had Jimmy Webb in MacArthur Park, which was pretty incredible. Oh, um, very good. But yeah, it's uh, it's it's downtown Los Angeles, and it's it's difficult to program just yeah. because it's um, historically it's not in the best area. Right. Um, and again, that's why Levitt went there is because, you know, they're trying to revitalize that area and bring free music to a community that wouldn't be able to afford to go see it. Yeah. Um, but going back to this, this block booking and things, you know, um, a mariachi, for example, or a cumbia artist, um, would kill it in Los Angeles and then come up to Pasadena and maybe not do so hot. Yeah. Or, you know, maybe we'd have, you know, Judy Collins or something play in Pasadena to a huge crowd and then bring them down to Los Angeles to crickets. Yeah. You know? And it's like this, 
this isn't going to work. Um, and the thing is, the two venues, they're only 12 miles apart, which in in Denver, I would never allow that kind of radius kind of thing. Right. But in Los Angeles, again, those demographics are completely different. Um, you know, Pasadena is, is a kind of wealthier, affluent, Caucasian um, demo, whereas MacArthur Park, Los Angeles is the biggest mixing pot of cultures. Mm. Um, you know, you have a huge Mexican culture there. Um, you have a huge Korean culture there. Um, big African culture there. Um, so it was, you know, the programming is was a challenge there because there are so many different um, cultures and demographics and you have to kind of play to all of them. Right. Um, whereas Pasadena was not that at all. Yeah. Um, and although they're only 12 miles away, um, it can take you well over an hour to get to either. So that was also the thought, right? Was, right. Um, you know, people aren't going to want to drive an hour if they can go right down the street to see it. Yeah. But at the same time, those people that are right down the street, you know, if they can see it in one place, they're not going to go see it the other. And, and I kind of found that we're just diluting both of our audiences, right? They're going right. to go and see one or the other. They're not going to go see both. Yeah. Um, so that was definitely a challenge. Um, but you know, then you fast forward a few years and, uh, Chris Zacker, who's the executive director for Levitt Pavilion Denver, yeah, you know, was doing his due diligence and visiting all of the Levitts throughout the United States and visiting with the production directors and saying, you know, what do you love? What do you hate? What do the artists really wish that they had? Um, so that, you know, he could build this pavilion in Denver that artists wanted to come to mm-hmm. and that it was a, you know, destination spot that was built for live events and concerts. A lot of the other Levitts um, were old, abandoned um, park band shells that weren't built for these big scale concerts. Yeah. Um, you know, Pasadena, for example, there wasn't even a green room. It was like a kind of a closet in the backstage area that, you know, artists would show up and be like, what the fuck is this? What did I, what have we gotten ourselves into? Yeah. Um, you know, homeless people sleeping on the stage and, um, you know, it, it was, it was a challenge from that standpoint. Levitt now, um, the model is they're all building from the ground up. And they're being built to be concert venues. Um, so, it's, it's, so there's plans for for more of them. There are, yeah. Um, there will be a couple more by 2022. Um, I think the foundation wants to cap the number of permanent venues to 12. Mm. Um, and like I said, we're at eight now. And um, Dayton and Sioux Falls just opened recently, both brand new. Um, Westport recently did cool. a huge renovation and rebuild. So that, that venue is super cool. Yeah. Um, Memphis is awesome. It's a, it's a huge shell and that's one that actually was a renovation of a park band shell, but it's the first place Elvis ever played, which is super cool. So and, that and shell's still there. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Um, but the foundation now, you know, they, they put on this amp series also where they give, um, a bunch of cities across the United States, um, funding in order to do a, a smaller scaled down um, community concert series. 
Um, so, you know, like I said, we're, we're the largest provider of, of free music um, in the United States. Just between the um, permanent venues, um, we do over 400 concerts a summer. Wow. And that's just a summer, um, you know, because we're all outdoors. All outdoors, yeah. 400. 400, and that's just the permanent venues. That doesn't include the Amp Series as well. Wow. So when, uh, how did the Denver thing come about, coming back here for, for Levitt? Yeah, so um, every Levitt is a three-part partnership between the local uh, Friends of Levitt, um, so in our case, Friends of Levitt Pavilion Denver, um, the National Levitt Foundation, and whatever city park that we go into because every Levitt Pavilion is in a city park. Yeah. Um, so, you know, Denver Parks is, is the third prong in, in that situation. Um, and so, you know, Chris worked everything out um, in order to get this built with the city and with the foundation. And um, like I said, he, he toured all the Levitts throughout the United States yeah. and him and I really hit it off and yeah. me being a Colorado native, you know, we're talking about it and, um, you know, after we kind of get to know each other a little bit, he's like, you know, man, if you ever want to come back to Denver, like, I'd love to have you there. Yeah. Um, and I had already been, you know, with Levitt. By the time I came to Denver, I'd already been with Levitt for four years. Okay. Um, and had done 400 shows myself between the two venues. No kidding. Um, so it was a no-brainer for me, um, especially because, you know, I had got to weigh in on the plans for the building, and, and it was built to be a concert venue, whereas um, – Los Angeles and Pasadena were both renovated existing band shells, which again, nothing wrong with that whatsoever. Not knocking that at all. Um, but it was really cool to be able to be involved in those plans and then see them come to fruition and then be able to come back to Denver where I left because there wasn't an opportunity that was big enough. Um, so it was awesome to be able to come back. There was one catered for you. Finally. Yeah. 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 Wow. And so you've been doing that. What the, you've been, at this one the last three years is that right yeah so we opened in 2016 okay um july of 2016 and you know we just did an abbreviated concert season um because we didn't open until the end of july um whereas you know we typically open end of may so that yeah um we have to do um part of the levitt model um and why we put on so many shows is um every levitt pavilion has to put on 50 free concerts every summer Um, so, you know, we couldn't do that that first season because we couldn't fit in 50 from the end of July to, you know, mid-September kind of thing. So we did 30, uh, free shows, but I was with Levitt actually the year prior. Um, you know, the, as with any big building project, there are delays and things like that. And the pavilion was supposed to be open the year prior. Um, but because of a lot of different um, factors and soil remediation and um, all these different things. We didn't open until a year after we had planned to. Yeah. But we had built up a lot of um, press and promotion um, surrounding the new pavilion. So Chris and I put on a five concert series um, at Civic Center Park, actually downtown, um, for free, obviously to to keep that um, momentum that we had with press and, and keep Levitt kind of at the forefront of people's minds. 
um, even though we weren't open yet and we're still building and, and just trying to remain relevant with the community that we had really worked hard um, to educate that we're even there. Um, you know, you'd be surprised how many people live in Denver and have no idea where Ruby Hill Park is. Yeah, um, right. Or have never heard of Levitt Pavilion, even though, you know, we're going into our fourth year now. Right. Um, so we did we did a, a five concert series uh, in 2015. So this will actually, going into 2020, will be my fifth year with Levitt Denver, ninth year with Levitt um, as a whole. So you came you came back to Denver when 2015. Correct. Okay. And so how did how did uh, how does family play into this? At some point, you uh, had a couple kids. I did. Um, I met my gorgeous wife in Los Angeles, and uh, we were married there um, before uh, we packed up and came to Denver. And you know, it was definitely definitely more of a sacrifice for my wife than for me you know I I was born and raised here you know and I had tons of uh tons of friends and family here um however I no longer have any family in Colorado um they've all moved to Arizona um and Texas (laughs) and everywhere that's not cold yeah um so it's been a challenge um, because we don't have any family out here surrounding us and we don't have that support system. Um, luckily, I have an incredible wife and, and our, our sons are awesome. And um, Levitt really gives me the flexibility to, to kind of re- remain a family man. Yeah. Um, and it's super cool, like I was telling you earlier, raising my boys in the venue. Um, yeah. They get to see so much different music and um you know they really they really get to experience a lot more than your average human does at a young age yeah well and and you mentioned that your eldest son uh zane as is better at breaching security than pretty much anyone else yeah he knows the venue in and out he knows where security is posted you know he pulls a little (laughs) Mission Impossible moves along the wall, trying to sneak behind security to get on stage. Um, do really, you just let it happen now? Um, it depends on the show, but no, not really. I don't let it happen. <laughs> if it's uh, if it's sound check, sure, but if it's while the show's going, probably not. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Zane Zane loves it, and you know, Levitt is a perfect family destination. So you know, my wife can bring out the boys, and we can lay out a blanket and. Um, you know, a lot of my job has already been done before the concert even begins. Um, so, you know, I'm able to actually spend some time with them and enjoy the concert with them a lot of times. Mm. And, um, yeah, I really, really worked out well in that aspect and, you know, I I couldn't be luckier. That's great. And talk about the, uh, the other family business you have going on too. Oh yeah. Zany pop kettle corn. Yeah. So that's Zane's, you know, Zany pop is yeah. Zane's business. So my other son is Ryder. So now I got to get him a hot dog stand or something so that things are fair. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, we, we sell kettle corn at the, at the venue and, um, you know, Zane works that one too. He's really good at giving out bags and, um, you know, that's that's cool because the family can all hang out in the trailer and, you know, we can all kind of work together kind of thing. Um, and in this day and age, um, one income typically isn't enough for um, families of four, you yeah. know. 
you got to have some other stuff, have some other stuff brewing. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Zany, Zany pop has been awesome. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely been able to afford us to do some other things and, um, you know, people come to the concerts and then they have the, the popcorn or whatever. And they're like, Hey, can you come to our event? It's like, yeah, sure. That's cool. Nice. Um, so yeah, that's, that's definitely led to some other stuff too. Um, yeah, but like I said, I gotta, now that Zane has his business, I gotta get one for Ryder too. Yeah. <laughs> Ryder hot dog stand could be cool. Yeah. I don't know about the ring to it though. We gotta have something like, uh, I don't know, Ryder's rolls or like something that kind of comes off the tongue. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Par- partner with Cinnabon or something. Ryder's yeah. rolls. Yeah. Now we're talking. Yeah. You need a, uh, you need, need to have alliteration. Yep, I like there. it. Yeah, or I can just you know put Ryder to work on lights or something like that. <laughs> Move the faders up and down. He'd love that. Yep, he would. Ryder's faders. Ryder's faders. Ooh, I don't know. Done. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, hey, thanks. Thanks so much for coming on. I appreciate it. And yeah, absolutely, uh, man. Thanks well, for having me. Absolutely. We'll talk to you soon. All right. See you, Andy. All right. My conversation with Chase Wessel. There you have it. What a nice guy. You know my. One of my favorite things about doing this podcast, obviously, I enjoy shooting the shit with my friends and being able to sit down in the basement and talk for hours or for 30 minutes or whatever. Or I've had cases where I've had uh, some sort of a conflict with someone in the past who's a buddy or whatever, and we talk it out on the air, and that's always sort of fun. We bring up things and and figure it out. But what I really love is getting to talk to people that I don't see around all the time or that maybe I've interacted with once or twice or maybe not at all. Um, and I get to meet them and become friends with them, and that's just that's just so awesome. And Chase, from the moment he walked in the door, I felt like we'd been buddies for years. Super cool dude, great conversation, and um, it's a big reason why I love... I love doing the podcast. So, Chase, thanks for coming on. I, I appreciate it very much. I want to take a second to thank our sponsors. Our newest sponsor is Narrator RF. Narrator RF offers simple and affordable licensing on exceptional music for sync. If you're interested in music for your whatever it is, podcast, wedding video, movie, you name it, go to www.narratorrf.com. Type in what kind of a track you're looking for in like a search engine. The song, a few options of what you're looking for will pop up. I've recently put a few uh, songs on there myself, instrumentals, orchestra things, a couple Irish jigs that I did. Um, So I've got some stuff on there as well. But you can check check out anyone's stuff. And then, of course, a big thanks to our sponsor since the beginning, PQ Mastering. Patrick at PQ Mastering puts the finishing touches on this podcast. For any of your audio or restoration needs, you can go to www.pqmastering.com. All right, that's all I got, folks. We'll see you in a couple weeks. If you liked what you're hearing, it really helps uh, on Apple Podcasts to rate and review. Of course, you can do that wherever you're listening, but Apple Podcasts, Um, is the one that uh, I I think helps us out the most. People ask, where do I leave a review? If you have an iPhone, do it on the Apple Podcast app. That helps out a lot. Um, 
For any questions, comments, concerns, hate mail, or death threats, you can shoot me an email at middleclassrockstar at gmail.com. We'll talk to you soon.